Hello, you're listening to a Zen Studies Society podcast. To learn more about our community of Zen Buddhist practitioners, please visit zenstudies.org. Good morning. This morning, we will have the Dharma talk and discussion by Dokoro Osho. So, welcome, Dokoro. Good morning. Thank you, Roshi. Good morning, everybody, on this wonderful fall day after the golden wind session that we had recently. What I have experienced is the wind blowing through my mind in all different kinds of directions at times. And uh, all leaves go by. One leaf says one thing, another leaf says another thing, just in the poem that I used uh, at the end of Golden Wind, the turning leaves that show their front and their back as they're falling down. And so I started contemplating a little bit on that nature of that mind of ours. And in that context, I picked up one of the anthologies that has texts by Rinzai masters. And one teacher we don't hear much about, but we know about from Japan is Banke. Banke. Banke lived in the 17th century, about one generation before Hakuin. So 1622 to 1693 were the dates of Banke. And he set out in this investigation of the human condition fairly early in his life. And already at the age of 26, after having spent two years in seclusion in a hut, suffering from consumption, close to death, one morning when he was washing his face, he had his first awakening. That pulled him out of the seclusion and led him to continue his studies with a Chinese teacher in Nagasaki. And most interestingly, he became the sole successor of that Chinese Chan master. And just like the story of the sixth ancestor, his teacher recommended to him to slip away during the night which he did to be not persecuted. He hid away out of sight after this great awakening. But eventually as it is, people started to gather around him and at the height of his teaching, it is said that he had tens of thousands of students and he did not only practice the monastic Zen, but he spoke to everybody because his teaching of the unborn is the basis of his understanding of Mahayana that includes everybody practicing or not. So I found this passage that I would like to read to you today. 
the master said to the assembly, what I tell people about is nothing special. It is the unborn enlightened mind innate in everyone. What is it about? While you are all here listening to my talk, when a dog barks outside the temple, you know it's a dog. And when a crow caws, you know it is a crow. And also you can distinguish the colors, red and green, and see the difference between men and women. Even though you are not thinking about hearing dogs or crows or seeing red, green, women or men during this talk. Nonetheless, right here you can see and hear them all before conceptually discriminating them. Then even if a thousand or 10,000 people should tell someone that the dog's bark is a crow's cock, that person would hardly be deceived by them. Isn't this awakened mind with its inconceivable qualities of clear awareness, something to be grateful for? Because people don't know that everyone has such wonderful qualities and powers, they get confused by one thing or another. That confusion ultimately arises from self-importance. Self-importance means, for example, that you get angry and upset when you hear your neighbor criticize you and you only dislike and maltreat that person henceforth. This is because of self-importance. Also, when you hear your neighbor praise you, you think well of that person and act nicely. This too is because of self-importance. Considering the root source of this self-importance, when people are born, they have no bad thoughts of hatred or good thoughts of liking for anyone. It's just that as they grow up, they learn and cultivate various bad things and bad thoughts by seeing and hearing them, piling them up into mental habits. Always putting these mental habits to use, various kinds of confusion and error begin. Hating people or being jealous of them is the condition of hell. Anger and rage is the condition of demons. Lustful thoughts of greed and stinginess are the condition of hungry ghosts. Regretting afterward and longing for what's ahead is folly, the condition of animals. These are called the four bad dispositions. These bad dispositions are not inborn at all. Originally, there is only the unborn awakened mind. But because of the outside dust and mental habits, the most important awakened mind is turned into the bad conditions of hells and whatnot. Born in the honorable human state, taking the quality of clarity which discerns good and bad, 
right and wrong and turning it into something worthless is a miserable, pitiful thing, is it not? The simplicity and the clarity of Banke, just hearing him almost 450 years after he said this is striking. And of course the parallels are still there because our human condition has not far strayed from where it always has been. Well, I have a few questions though, you know. Uh, one, one sentence struck me because it is true nowadays, we do have people telling us that the bark of the dog is the call of a crow. And by repeating it over and over again, some people start to actually believe that this way or that way. And it seems so striking that the, uh, this is a third animal which we bring in here. It's the one of slight that likes to deceive people. And I think you know what kind of animal that is. It's a fox. But we have these foxes in our minds as well. When we look at our own thoughts that come up here and there, it is like we turn into an antenna to the various things that are being broadcast by, by our human condition. Their stations of conservative thought, their stations of liberal thought, their stations of self-centered thought. Horror movies are being broadcast at times <laughs> and comedies as well. All the thoughts that come through. How do these thoughts, that was my question, relate to that unborn mind? One could really develop an understanding here from hearing Banke speak that thoughts are not part of the whole thing somehow. And that is as far as I'm concerned, not a wholesome approach because we have to be aware that whatever is here huh, is here, suchness, even of thoughts. We cannot exclude thoughts. We cannot exclude opinions, not our own, not those of what we call other individuals, other ways of thinking other religions, other worldviews. Yes, they are there in the same way that our thoughts are here. And at times we fall into the thinking, well, 
my zazen is no good because the thoughts do not disappear at all. I'm not supposed to think. That's one of the questions that comes up a lot when practitioners come into Dharma interviews, into Doksan. Oh, I, I cannot get rid of my thoughts. For this, let me pull out a quick quote, a quick section from Maureen Stewart, Mion Chico, speaking just about that. Of course we think. We can never get rid of thoughts completely. And to imagine that we can is not realistic. So to judge ourselves, to chastise ourselves for our thoughts is a waste of time. But how do we deal with this thinking? Thinking is pondering, considering, weighing, judging, and so on. Having an argument back and forth in our minds. Not thinking is the denial of thinking, denying what is going on in spite of ourselves. Zazen is something else. Zazen is completely accepting the presence of ideas, of thoughts, without either affirming or denying them, without engaging them. Sometimes there is a life situation to which we must direct our attention. At such time, of course, we must think it through. We think it down to the last drop, but we do not fool ourselves that we are practicing Zazen. Thoughts are not our enemies in Zazen. Our thoughts are endless, inexhaustible. This is the nature of our minds. Thoughts are not bad. We let them come, but we do not pursue them. What do we do with this powerful energy that comes about through our sitting? Instead of using it to engage in these thoughts, to make arguments in our mind, to raise waves where there is no wind, what do we do? We have excellent practices to help us. Counting our breath, just counting. Chanting inwardly, just chanting. Staying with the core, becoming the core, being moved, nothing but move, just inhaling, just exhaling, the breaths just as it is, without getting tense, without judging, weighing or considering, just this. Now, please, the next portion is immensely important. Maureen says, there is a difference between not thinking and being without thinking. The difference is between a simple negation and the Buddhist doctrine of emptiness, shunyata. The Buddhist doctrine of shunyata is the pure presence of things just as they are, without thinking, with no intentional attitude at all. No, I believe this to be the case nor is it or isn't it pure presence. This reaches the ground of our being, our clear, pure mind, 
And then we have a base for our thinking and reflection. That is what our practice is for. What does it give us for our lives? A strong seed, a firm base. Then life can be dealt with. Heart are full, heart full, head cool. I myself tend to remember the word that my ordination teacher, Joshu Roshi, used for this. It is the center of gravity, the center of gravity to which we establish this strong connection, the strong connection that stays wherever we may move on this ocean of thought, the ocean of samsara, our little vessel moves around and that is how it is. Yet if we stay in very strong relationship with that center of gravity through our breath, then no questions arise. That unborn is there always from the very beginning beyond thinking. So that's one of the most common questions. What, why I don't know what to do with my thinking? Well, we have to exhaust it. And when there are repetitive thoughts, well, there might be some condition in our lives that requires us to pay attention to it. When Maureen says, think it through to the last drop, then that means there is some exhaustion. Joshu Roshi again said, well, there's a barrel that's full with these thoughts. If you stick your finger into the bunghole, it will never empty. But then one day you can't leave your finger there all the time. It will all come out. So drip, 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 like a little trickle it's probably more manageable than the onslaught of a flood wave. Not thinking and without thinking are two completely different things. And that leads me to the next application here. Because the next question that often comes, how do I take this center of gravity, this without thinking into my daily life? And already we have the first thought that there is a distinction. If we are present right here and now, if we attend to this presence, where is there a limitation? Where is there a distinction? It's only when we leave this, what we are doing, where we are, how we are, that we create a separation of practice and life. How do I bring this into my life? The question is, how do you recognize your life in this? Nothing needs to be brought anywhere. It is right here. 
unborn, as Banquet said. Another question that comes up quite a lot is, how do I deepen my practice? That kind of thought goes in the same question category as how do I bring this into my life? And it is true that if we think that way as an expression of intention, it's a wonderful thing to have because it's an expression of what we would call a vow or of the commitment that we will walk this path. So this intention of bodhicitta, expressing it in words, I want to deepen my practice, I want to be more present, is wonderful. Yet when it comes to do zazen and to sit down at that moment, if we carry that intention with us in this kind of formulated state, then it turns into the first hindrance of actually being able to do what our intention is. All measuring, all judgment has to cease without thinking, without judgment. Here's another short bit from Maureen just going to that very topic. Somebody comes to Doksan and says to me, I think I am making progress in my Zazen. Oh, really? How do you know that? You have to be out of it to know that. If you're right in it, you have no thought, no feeling of doing well or doing badly. You and it are one. When you get up from sitting, you may feel some wonderful effect. But while you are doing real zazen, there is no time and place to judge it. Or I should rather say, when it is doing you, don't judge it. Others say, my zazen is going well. Nonsense. So without thinking, without judgment, without objectification, Zazen is creating that relationship and being in relationship. Relationship becomes mature at the moment where our objectification, our subject and object starts to dissolve. We all know from our lives and from our longings that as human beings, relationship is what brings our heart and mind, our light to even a brighter glow. Because first with human beings, it's easy for us to feel how we are imperfect and where we have our incompleteness to which we are trying to attend. We try to do it in many ways, sometimes by having ideas that are most generous 
most refined. Sometimes we try it through acquiring this or that. It could be a physical thing. It could be an honor or an identity. But that longing for completeness means that we are bound to engage in relationship. Zazen teaches us that relationship without that self-centeredness, the self-interest that Banke spoke about. Especially in these times, that is important. Last night, I spoke with uh, residents of Daibusatsu Zendo, and it is fall, and I learned that just last week, they, I think, or this week, this week, last week, just a few days ago, they read the story about raking the leaves in the fall, and the person is raking all the leaves, and they are all gone. And then comes the old man and shakes the tree. Now it is perfect. That story is not only a false story, but it's a story of that transformative practice that we engage in. Here we see the idea of being attached to a specific outcome. All the leaves have to be gone. That is transformation from leaves to no leaves. But recently, more than transformation, I think it's not transformational. We should just call it transient because there is no beginning and no end. And so the shaking of the leaves is neither the end to the no leaves nor the beginning of leaves on the ground. And that led me to think about, well, here we are, yeah, at least that Zen practitioner had a rake and was going through the garden and was raking it. We live in the age where nobody does that anymore. Instead of engaging in the process of raking, of being with nowadays, the goal is so important, even in Zen. There is what I call leaf blower Zen out there. You know, there is nothing more annoying than a leaf blower, especially if it is gas powered. And what does it do? It is for the purpose of taking what seems to be a problem and displacing it to a place where we don't see it. Leaf blowers and loud a displacement that denies the process and the journey as of the most importance in this practice. And funny, if you turn the TV on, we are living also in the age of green. So the newest leaf blowers that there are, are electric. They still make a lot of noise, but the newest model even, you can take with you without any cord that attaches you. So even though this is a detached leaf blower and you can use it on the go, they choose the name Ego Leaf Blower. How fitting. 
the most fitting name, the ego leaf blower you can carry everywhere. So let's be aware of that. When we try to clean up that, what we say is debris, when we attend to that, what needs to be raked in front of us. And my last thought for today's talk is looking at a slightly more serious thought of, well, we are coming up to an election. We are living in a society where there is strife, polarization. And what I think we as Zen practitioners have to do that we make the core of our Zen practice, what we practice as a citizen as well. We are here to unite, to bring together, to come together on the level of that unborn, which is the level of our common humanity. It does not mean we will come, come together on the level of our opinions. That is not necessary. It would be wonderful, but it is not necessary. It is more important to unite in our common humanity. We have to be really careful not to conflate the opinion of a person, their conviction. May it be deluded from our point, may it appear as completely off the wall. We cannot conflate that and turn it into the absence of that much more fundamental commonality and the physical reality of our coexistence. When we fall into that trap of abstraction, by that very act of abstraction, we dehumanize ourselves and create the oppositional other. So that's why I really appreciate no matter conviction, what conviction you are, to go out and say, vote, participate in our common humanity, live your life, but do it on the base of that common, unjudgeable, unerasable, unborn humanity. This has been a Zen Study Society podcast. If you found it to be of interest, please consider making a donation by visiting zenstudies.org slash donate. Thank you for listening.